Charlie's War, the, um, the anti-war serial Charlie's War, in case you're not familiar with it, uh, although you can see it uh, up there now, with its brilliant art by Joe Cahoon, was the number one serial in a comic called Battle during the 1980s. And uh, it's, it was remarkable because Battle was a war comic and generally had what you might call a, a war is hell or a, a war is exciting tone. Uh, to it. And Charlie's War was um, the, the first, I think, uh, in terms of popular culture, the only anti-war story. Uh, the definition of an anti-war story is it doesn't make you want to join the army. Uh, so a war is hell story is very different. Apocalypse Now, for example, is a, uh, a war is hell film and um, American soldiers watched it before they invaded Iraq. Um, same with uh, Full Metal Jacket, the same thing. So uh, they would hardly watch, for example, All Quiet on the Western Front. So there's a very important definition on, a, on an anti-war story. It's, it's, gotta, it's gotta be readable, it's gotta be exciting, uh, but it's gotta put you off. And uh, Charlie's War not only succeeded in doing that, um, it was the most successful story in what you could argue was a pro-war comic. It left a huge impression on its young readers. Um, many of them were from uh, military families and they decided not to uh, enlist in the army. Now, uh, for me, as a result, um, it led to even more readers uh, becoming history teachers, uh, an astonishing number of them. There's usually, oh, I grew up reading Charlie's War and I became a history teacher as a result. Um, so again, for me, that's a result because they were passing on its, uh, or at least I hope they were, passing on its anti-war message uh, to new generations. And uh, to this day, uh, the collected edition still sells well. Now, significantly, Charlie's War still endorsed the widely held view on the Great War that most of us believed in the 1980s, and most of us, I think, still believe in today, that the whole thing was a, an incompetent mess. In other words, it was uh, people sleepwalked into it, it all got out of control, and uh, it was just a, a giant mistake. Um, that's not true. Uh, it was something other. And I'll come back to that, and that's really the, if you like, the essence of, of my talk. But I accepted that. I just thought they're, they're all stupid, uh, incompetent, and hence why it was such a disaster. Um, now, at the time, from a comic point of view, Charlie's War seemed like the last word. I mean, what else was there to say? I'd covered the whole, um, the whole dramatic story from uh, the Battle of the Somme through to the British invasion of Russia. 
And so I really thought my job was done, and I moved on to other projects. Um, and then, in the 1990s, um, attitudes began, began to change. And as far as I'm aware, this hasn't really been recorded anywhere. Um, at least uh, not, in, uh, not in any newspapers or, or um, publications that I've read. And this is the revisionist uh, movement, uh, a very powerful movement amongst modern historians, uh, strongly supported by the state. And to begin with, I didn't really take it very seriously. Um, but as most of you will know here, that the, the essence of revisionism is to present World War I as a just war, and the generals as misunderstood men of vision, despite all the considerable evidence to the contrary. Uh, thus, we had, um, in the late 1990s, I think, BBC One's The Somme, From Defeat to Victory. Now, that's a, a very challenging title, The Somme, A Victory. And I think that tells you just how far the revisionists tie themselves in knots. And, and it's a little difficult, I have to say, for me, uh, because I'm not an academic, and therefore I, I don't have your politeness, because I find this really uh, gets me out of my pram. I mean, it, it's just appalling. Um, and so, uh, so I'm, I have to restrain myself a little bit. Um, books about General Haig... Um, suddenly started appearing. I think there, I, I counted them up once. I think there was about half a dozen of them. And they all had titles like um, Haig, the Good Soldier, Douglas Haig, Architect of Victory. And I forced myself to read two of them for a, a project. And it was very, very hard work. And really, at that time, if you were a historian and you wanted to get into print, Say something good about General Haig, and publishers would be all over you. And it was like they were trying to put the clock back, as they still are, and to revive the questionable glories of the British Empire. So I really felt I had to write a new World War I comic strip to challenge revisionism. And so I submitted various comic proposals to publishers based on the commercial success of Charlie's War. Charlie's War still makes money today for publishers, so that's usually what counts for a publisher. It does it sell. So there I was with my new projects, good artists, and so forth. And they didn't get anywhere. And it slowly began to dawn on me that there was a media blackout on anything anti-war during the centenary years. Um, four media projects on Charlie's War, for example, uh, including a proposed television series from a major production company, mysteriously hit a brick wall. It's just one after the other. And to begin with, you think, well, it's just bad luck. And then after a while, you realise this is a pattern and it's very disturbing. Now, the blackout is, is quite provable. On, I could give you loads of examples, but just to quote four... Um, any existing anti-war films were rarely, if ever, shown on terrestrial British TV. Monocle Mutineer, Oh What a Lovely War, Blackadder Goes Forth. Now, very occasionally these things might have been shown late at night, but by and large, none of these things were there. And um, 
So it wasn't enough for the revisionists to heavily promote their one-sided point of view. They had to silence the opposition as well. Now, given, if you like, the passion with which Joe drew Charlie's War and that I wrote it, I, I really felt I just can't really let that go. And all this made me look much closer at the reasons for the Great War, which I'd hitherto um, blindly accepted. Um, we're presented essentially with two basic reasons. First, that it was a disaster um, caused by incompetent politicians and uh, carried out by incompetent generals. And then we have today's reason, the revisionist patriotic necessary war against imperial German evil, fighting for freedom in alliance with France and um, Tsarist Russia, um, conducted by generals of vision working under incredibly difficult circumstances. And their actions were misunderstood rather than uh, stupid. And ultimately, this led to a magnificent victory. That, that's essentially, I suppose, the revisionist perspective after um, five long years of slaughter. Now, neither of these reasons makes complete sense if you really think about them. And you don't have to be an expert or a historian to figure it out. It's nowhere near as complicated as anyone might think. It's just detail. Because it's possible, I think, for any one of us to really work this out for ourselves at using our own intuition and our own common sense and to say, well, what was this really all about? Because it's either the whole thing was a stupid disaster or it was um, misunderstood but actually well put together. And um, Haig was indeed incompetent with a cruel arrogance, but he was not quite the idiot he's presented as in the hilarious Blackadder Goes Forth. Um, so I, I, I cite this example to show how that there's something here to question and to challenge. And the historians, as far as I know, are not challenging this. So... Haig knew about the terrible power of the machine gun at first hand. He'd fought at the Battle of Omdurman when just 48 British soldiers were killed, while the Sudanese enemy lost nearly 11,000 men, many to the machine gun. So this idea that he didn't really know the power of the machine gun is it's just nonsense. Um, and then again, the new trench war the, the revisionists will say, well, you know, he didn't really understand it and it took time to adjust. This is nonsense as well, because either he or at least his military staff would have known about the realities and the stalemate of trench warfare from the American Civil War. So, you know, once you start asking those questions, it's where, where do you go from there? And so at Luz, at the Battle of Luz, the subject of Ragtime Soldier... He knowingly, knowingly sent all those courageous young men, including Dundee's Black Watch, to certain death to be machine gunned in no man's land while German machine gunners were screaming at them to go back and refusing to fire their guns anymore. Now, these are the kind of stories that, thankfully, we can tell this in, um, uh, in Dundee Great War, 
but hitherto you couldn't. There was, there was no way I could tell those kind of stories. And similarly, Haig or his subordinates ordered the release of poison gas from British trenches when they knew the wind was blowing in the wrong direction. So it blew back and asphyxiated many soldiers in the Black Watch. Now, the usual argument is, well, they're just stupid. That does not hold up. I don't think that holds up. You have to say, why would any general, even a stupid one, do something so ludicrous? Uh, what does our common sense, our intuition tell us? And I know what mine tells me, that the Battle of Luz was set up to fail. Just like all the great battles that followed, which have a very similar story. The Battle of the Somme, Ypres, Passchendaele. So this leads to a third reason and a conclusion um, that, in my view, makes chilling sense and is rarely written about, with one exception, and never discussed and is central to Ragtime Soldier. That the war itself was started deliberately and deliberately prolonged for four murderous years beyond 1914 for profit, for power, and to crush social unrest. Now, this was recognised at the time. Uh, what I'm saying isn't particularly radical. It's own, it may only seem radical because it's not aired very often. But, for example, uh, the great journalist E.D. Morrill, um, who previously had exposed genocide in the Belgian Congo and became um, a Dundee uh, Member of Parliament after the war, um, he covered a lot of this ground, how the war was started deliberately. And I pointed Morrill's view out to leading revisionist uh, Gary Sheffield, who simply said to me, Morrill was mistaken, but he didn't enlighten me as to how. And even at the time, the poet and anti-war uh, hero, sorry, yeah, anti-war hero, Siegfried Sassoon, accused the British government, he said... I believe that the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. Now, because he was a fox-hunting pillar of the establishment, uh, they just put him in a mental hospital. If he'd been an ordinary soldier, he'd have been shot. So that perspective was out there. And, but today, and this is worrying in itself that I'm only aware of one excellent book that reveals this third reason. Um, and that's by Jim McGregor and Jerry Doherty, and it's called Prolonging the Agony. Um, and it was a major inspiration for Ragtime Soldier and a World War I novel I'm writing next year. And uh, Jim is in our audience here today, so I just want to say to Jim, thank you. Thank you for writing that book. It's uh, very, very important. And as I say, it's disturbing that it's the only book of its kind. Um, now, to give you an idea of its importance, and, uh, you know, this isn't some obscure conspiracy theory. This is something that's very thoroughly worked out. Uh, James Corbett of the Corbett Report produced a film based on Jim and Jerry's books about World War I. It's had half a million views. So there's half a million people out there 
uh, who want to know the truth about the Great War. Um, prolonging the agony uh, through that book, we get an insight into how the truth of the Great War was carefully hidden. Um, so many key documents that are now missing, destroyed, or locked away forever. So many war conferences where the details are mysteriously unrecorded or redacted. And once you, once you go down that road, it's, it's how far down the rabbit hole do you go? Because there's just more and more evidence seems to come to light. It's frustrating for me because I'm not a historian. I, I'm a comic book writer, so I have to think, no, I daren't look at all this stuff. So I, I'm so grateful that Jim is. Um, now, if a book is really damning, the establishment and their revisionist frontmen have only one option. There's only one, there's only one answer to this, which is to blanket. They dare not open the subject up to debate. And that's exactly what happened. The um, Responding to Jim and Jerry's books, the media silence is deafening. Um, despite a film about their work that's received half a million views, there were no reviews in The Guardian, The Independent, The Times, Telegraph, nothing. And I think their frightened silence, because that's the only word I have for it, I think is the greatest compliment to your books, Jim, that they just had to keep quiet about it. What else could they do? They could not open this subject up for debate. Um, and Jim has a personal connection to the Battle of Luz, uh, which I also wanted to share with you. Uh, Jim told me recently, my granny McGregor's wee brother, James Loudon, private in the Highland Light Infantry, age 19, was killed at Luz on the 2nd of October, 1915. He has no known grave I can visit, but his name is on the Luz Memorial with 20,000 others with no, no known grave, and I'm hoping to go there on the 2nd of October. So, coming back to this uh, central theme, why cover up the truth about the Great War, you may ask? Um, well, I suppose the answers are fairly obvious, um, because today, Britain and America's modern wars are similar wars without end, from Iran and Afghanistan onwards. Um, they don't really want people to ask questions about why are, they, why are they carrying on with these conflicts. Um, the similarities between how the Great War started and these other uh, recent wars started are remarkable. How Parliament and the public uh, was misled over Iraq, for example. Um, in exactly the same way, the truly Machiavellian British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, uh, misled Parliament at the time into joining the Great War. So nothing has changed. Um, it's exactly the same dark reasons as a hundred years ago. Um, so with this media blackout firmly in place, I'd actually given up. I thought, there's just no way I can write a sequel or another story uh, like Charlie's War. So you can imagine my surprise and delight when, was it just a few months ago, uh, Chris and Phil asked me to write Ragtime Soldier about the Battle of Luz, Scotland, Somme, and the key election after the war. Um, and 
that election after the war is fa a fascinating subject in itself. I, I don't get into it because I, I'm just utterly enthralled by the, the details of it, so I'm going to have to skim over it. But um, uh, Gary and Phil have done a fantastic job in visualising uh, the Battle of Luz with the same power and humanity as, as Joe Cahoon would have done. And that's incredible because Joe Cahoon on Charlie's War, what a hard act to follow. I mean, my God, it's, it's just so, so difficult. And uh, so I, I'm in awe. And um, there's a few other aspects I just want to briefly mention. I can't resist just stressing the fact uh, why ragtime soldiers? Um, because it's something that is often neglected. Um, the Tommies called themselves ragtime soldiers because ragtime music was the rock and roll of its day. It was hot, it was sexy, and parents hated it. Uh, if, you, if you hear it today, it sounds awful on YouTube. It's so crackly and so on. But I have worked my way through it, and some of the tracks, you can see how it is. And so they saw themselves as rock and roll soldiers. And there's something I think, I don't know, I personally have never seen before. You know, I thought of my grandfather who, who was in the Great War, and I could never imagine him being into rock and roll, you know. But I think it's because we, we, we will sort of meet them when they're in their 70s or 80s or 60s or something. So, and, and like a lot of people of those generations, they, they don't want to talk about their teenage years, you know. No, 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 no. I was, I was always this really solid guy, you know. <laughs> um, so our story suggests that the incompetence of the Battle of Luz was deliberate. And um, uh, so I, I, I'm, you know, that was something I think I really needed to do to, um, if you like, uh, get that off my chest and and also to to put that point of view out for a, for an audience particularly a young audience because i think what we want what i want people to do is to question this not not to accept the uh establishment historian's point of view because uh jim gets into this in his books that a lot of them uh, are from oxford and they have a particular agenda and they are the authors that I grew up reading, A.J.P. Taylor, H.A.L. Fisher, um, those authors. And they have a particular perspective that, um, uh, if you like, endorses the revisionist attitude. Um, and there's another thing that comes up in the comic, uh, which is actually even more shocking, which is that during the war, the British government, as a matter of record, was trading war supplies with its enemy, Germany. The binoculars the British artillery were using at Luz were supplied by the German army. German military vehicles were running on British-supplied rubber tyres. This is all a matter of record. And alongside that example, there's probably at least another 10. And all this, of course, is high treason. And there were soldiers that, like this uh, story, um, someone was talking about earlier, soldiers shot for, for whatever reason. These, this is high treason. If anyone should be shot for anything, it should be trading with the enemy. Um, now, the remarkable thing is that Dundonians knew something what was, of what was going on, hence why Churchill lost the election here. 
I mean, this is Churchill, who in 1915, uh, the year of the Battle of Luz, said how much he adored war. Um, so I think that um, somehow that this really got through to Dundonians of what Churchill really stood for. And I think it's, it's worth adding here that uh, I think this has come up, I think Billy mentioned something to this effect, that um, we have blogs today. Back then they had pamphlets and they got information out about what was going on. And, and from the pamphlets I've read, these very cheap ones that they just knocked out overnight, they were covering some pretty detailed subjects in a very powerful way. Um, so I think in some ways they were possibly better informed than we are today, which is a bit worrying really, if you think about it. But um, I mean, the whole Red Clyde movement, for example, and it's great to know that uh, Dundee's possibly got the edge on, on Red Clyde, uh, which impresses the hell out of me. Um, and just like today, people were bombarded with propaganda. Um, the spin doctors of the time were novelist John Buchan, who was the head of propaganda. And another character, Major Pollard, uh, who I, I could talk about forever because he's the villain that you love to hate. He's the most, he features in Ragtime Soldier, but he is responsible for telling the most revolting propaganda lies to make people hate the enemy. Now, Pollard, as I say, who is the key villain in Ragtime Soldier, he just makes a guest appearance that uh, I wanted him in there. He was an officer in the British propaganda department, MI7B, and he proudly claimed that he personally came up with a particularly awful propaganda lie, that the Germans were melting down their dead soldiers into soap. Now, he joked to his cousin how the Germans were having a state funeral for a giant slab of soap. And as he related the story, he was almost doubled up on the floor with laughter. Um, now, I, I, I could, as I say, there's so many awful stories about Pollard. And I have to say, as, as a comic book writer, you know, villains like that, they, they are a godsend because it's like Darth Vader. I mean, this, this guy's a monster. I, I will just mention a couple of others. Uh, but as I say, don't get me started on Pollard. Um, I'm pretty certain he was the British propagandist who came up with the story that the Germans replaced the clappers inside church bells with nuns tied upside down. Now, that, that sounds so ludicrous, but... I think he was a, an exponent of the, the Goebbels thing, the, the, the bigger the lie, the more people will believe it. And he was a master of black propaganda. Um, the kind of propaganda that's still used by our own spin doctors today, uh, in Syria, for instance, with what I see as fake news about poison gas. Um, just one last Pollard anecdote. Um, he actually started the Spanish Civil War by rescuing General Franco from exile in the Canaries. So he's, he, he was just an astonishing character. And these were the kind of people who were bombarding the public with lies, whipping up hatred towards conscientious objectors and pacifists. Oh yeah, one more Pollard story, because again, it comes up with 
uh, what, what came up earlier, the, the Dundonian attitude towards conscientious objectors. It was Pollard who wrote articles for a newspaper encouraging its readers to go out and beat up conchies as unpatriotic cowards. And you can probably guess the newspaper. Now, on this occasion, it wasn't the Daily Mail, it was the Daily Express. Pollard worked for the Daily Express. Um, but some, some ordinary people still threw all these lies. They, they saw through it, particularly in Scotland and especially in Dundee. And thanks to Billy, I learned that Dundonian soldiers were surprisingly sympathetic to pacifists. And that really impresses me because um, it shows they must have had a lot of insight and a lot of compassion. And they must have known what was really going on. Um, that attitude to pacifists and conscientious objectors is still around today. I, um, my hometown is Colchester, a military town, and I don't think that I could walk down Colchester High Street in November, say, with a, a white poppy without being confronted, at the very least. I, I actually checked with Colchester soldiers and they said something along those lines of, what's, what's the white poppy for? You know, it's a, it's against you know what we're fighting for, etc., etc. So you had a very advanced perspective, I think, in Dundee, that one hundred years ago, um, and all these issues peak in Ragtime Soldier with the astonishing election in the aftermath, where Churchill loses and two war resistors win, and I say war resistors because I think there's something else that our media has. Uh, really done a terrible job on. They shamefully turned words like conscientious objectors and pacifists into dirty words, like the white poppy. The white poppy's seen as, ugh, you know, what are you, some sort of girly or coward or whatever. And so I, I think the word resistor, and it's, it's come up in the conversations earlier, I think it's a really important word. I think if we can portray these characters as members of the British resistance, uh, and I, I, I suppose I'm thinking from the point of view of writing for kids. You know, they, they know about the French resistance, so you talk about the British resistance, and there's all these incredible heroes. Um, uh, Alice Wielden, John S. Clarke, uh, with very colourful characters, and I think if we can present them as the British resistance, if, the minute you say conscientious objector or pacifist, because they've been so brainwashed, we think, oh, oh I don't want to read about them. I, it's this kind of glorifying in war. And it's possible to tell an alternative story and still be exciting. I think Charlie's War proves that, and I hope that Ragtime uh, Soldier does the same thing. Um, and as I say, the here we go. We're coming back to Pollard again. I can't get away from him. The, the darker side of all this is personified in Ragtime Soldier, with a vigilante organization called the Legion of Frontiersmen. Now, that sounds most unlikely, doesn't it? The Legion of Frontiersmen. They, they sound like some uh, American superheroes. They really existed. They're still around today. And they're vigilantes. And um, uh, they are led in the story by Major Pollard, who really was a cross between uh, James Bond and and Flashman by George MacDonald um, Fraser. <clears throat> so I suppose um, uh, to sort of conclude really, 
I think Ragtime Soldier, for, for the reasons I've exampled, is actually, in some respects, more relevant than, than Charlie's War today because it's exploring the reason why. With Charlie's War, everyone said, well, it's a disastrous, terrible war, and, and you know, you didn't look beyond it. But you read Ragtime Soldier, you're going to have to question the facts. Even, even if you question the author and say, no, you're talking crap, Pat, no, this isn't true. It doesn't matter. It, it, I, I want the audience to, uh, to really think about what's going on. Um, so I, I think that's one important element to it. And the other one, of course, is um, there's revisionism now. And when Charlie's War came out, everyone, Charlie's War wasn't that big a deal. You know, as a story, yeah, it's anti-war, so what? You know, it was the 80s. Most people, you know, it was punk had just kind of peaked and so forth. So it wasn't that unusual. But the world we live in today is so dangerous and Britain reviving its imperial past and so forth. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid Ragtime Soldier is far more important. I, I wish it wasn't. I wish it wasn't necessary to, to do a story like that. Um, uh, and so, I, you know, I feel, uh, you know, we have to do this story to challenge uh, the revisionists and, and tell the truth about um, why all those young men uh, really died. So, hence Ragtime Soldier and Great War Dundee comic. And um, we're hopefully reaching a young audience, uh, just like the Charlie's War young audience. And we even have a way now for Great War Dundee to reach a nationwide newsstand audience. Um, so we've actually beaten the media blackout, <laughs> which considering the, 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 I mean, I was trying to beat it for years. I, I, I think I was trying for about three or four years and then before I gave up. So, you know, my congratulation to everyone who made it possible. I, I'm so grateful to you all, uh, uh, particularly Chris, Phil and Billy, thank you very much. Thank you. Dundee Comic will be free in the October issue of Comic Scene Magazine. Sponsored by GetMyComics.com. Comic Scene is available monthly from WH Smiths and all good comics retailers. Join us next month for another episode of Comic Scene, the podcast.